Amen. All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. So I had a fearful moment this week. My son Ben got his learner's permit. <laughs> Stay with me. Actually. It wasn't scary that he got his permit. I was actually very excited that he got his permit. In fact, he got his permit and I tossed him the keys and I said, let's go. I mean, I was really pumped. I, I love to drive. I remember when I got my permit, how exciting that was and fun. I was excited for him. So he got in the car and he's, you know, driving, driving, driving. Everywhere that he could drive, I was letting him drive. And then uh, a few days back, we were uh, driving through the parking lot in Kroger and this truck started pulling, backing up right, right toward us. And I didn't think Ben saw the truck and I was absolutely positive that truck did not see us because it's coming right back at us and we're going right toward us. And I, and I wanted, I wanted to scream. Um, or, you know, I wanted to reach over and hit the horn. I wanted to grab the wheel. I wanted to do something, but it just, it happened so fast. Next thing I know, my son, he punched on the gas, turned the wheel, went out around this truck and I was like, brilliant. (laughs) That was awesome. Right. That was awesome. And I was, you know, I'm kind of shaking a little bit. Man, great move, buddy. That was a really good move. Next time, like honk your horn or stop or do something, you know, but I was thinking about it. why, Why was I so afraid? I was afraid because I was out of control, right? I, I like to drive always because I want my hands on the wheel at all time. Like I, I like to be in control and begin causing me to think about fear. Why do we fear? Well, we fear because we have this sense of being out of control. And we're fearful being out of control that the consequences might be devastating. We might not recover from these things. So I began to think more about fear this week. We fear when we're out of control, but here's a fact, folks. Uh, We are out of control (laughs) over many things in life, uh, really important things, or we have very little control over these things. And I really think that as Christians, we should just learn to live with that and be okay with it because God is in control. And you can say amen this morning, right? God is in control. You're not And you either get okay with that or you're going to live in fear your whole life because it's just a fact. But we can be comforted. God is in control. And the outcome from time to time of circumstances, it it might be really deeply sorrowful. But for the Christian, it's not devastating. No matter what happens to us, life goes on. Life goes on either now or life goes on forever But for us, life goes on, so we have hope, always. So we don't have to live in fear. Instead, we can live in faith. I was thinking, actually, about this whole concept of fear, not just because uh, my truck was almost destroyed this week, but uh, over the last several months, watching the church have so much fear over this election. In my short 51 years on this earth, I've never seen Christians wringing their hands so much and and expressing so much anxiety and consternation and fear over an election. And I wonder uh, if we're thinking about it right. That we're not in control, are we? No, Uh, you have one vote and I have just one vote. So none of you has control over this election, but God does. God does. God is in control. And you know what? The outcome, Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, will not be devastating. It may be a change, but what will it be? It'll be a new 
set of cultural realities in which the church can be salt and light in a new way, right? Maybe through greater blessing, maybe through greater suffering, but we will continue to move on with exactly the same role that we have always had. So what I want to do this morning, church, is I want us just to all step back and let's just get a little bit of perspective on all this, right? <laughs> let's just get a little perspective from God's standpoint. So my first exhortation to you is this, no fear. God's got this, all right? No fear, God's in control. I want you to read with me in the book of Joshua, chapter 5 and verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. <laughs> that, okay. That's, that wasn't what Joshua expected. He said, no. Rather, I indeed come now as the captain of the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he bowed down and he said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Whose side are you on? You on our side or the other side? He said, no. I'm on God's side. And God holds all authority over all creation because he made all things. Now, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was asked, whose side do you think God is on? Do you think God is on the side of the Union Army? And he said this, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. That is a humble and a true statement, right? All authority belongs to God. God. Now, consequently, all human authority is established by God. Any human authority that exists is delegated authority because all authority rests with God. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. All human authority is delegated authority. All human authority, Paul tells us, has been established by God. Or as the angelic watcher told Nebuchadnezzar, the most highest ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Right? All authority is established by God. Now, there's an interesting statement. It's at the end of Second Chronicles, and then it's repeated again at the beginning of Ezra. There is a, a secular king. His name is Cyrus. And Cyrus acknowledges that it is Yahweh, the Lord, that has given him the kingdoms of the earth. Now, was Cyrus a, a worshiper of Yahweh? Well, possibly. He probably began to worship Yahweh along with all of his other gods when he heard about Yahweh. But at this point in his life, he acknowledges all authority is ultimately with the God of heaven and he has allowed me to be king over all of these earthly kingdoms and he has actually appointed me to do good for his people and send them back so that they can build a temple to the Lord so that the Lord can be worshipped in his land and do good to me and all of my people. And he acknowledges that. And you see that throughout all the scriptures, that God is in control of the earthly rulers and the earthly kingdoms, and he moves them around in order to do his bidding. That is the story of the book of Judges. Right? God's people are in rebellion against God, and so what does God do? Well, he brings in other nations to discipline even his own people. 
His people are under his authority. All these other nations are under his authority, and he causes that to happen. This, this is Habakkuk's struggle, right? He looked out at his own people, and they were unrighteous. It's like, God, our people are wandering away from you. They're not worshiping you. God, what are you going to do about that? And the Lord says to Habakkuk, he says, Habakkuk, don't worry about it. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans to discipline my people. And Habakkuk says, um, no, well, uh, could, is there another plan possibly? Because, God, they're worse than us. How can you use that nation that's worse than we are to discipline us? And he says, don't worry about it. I'm going to discipline all of you. Because all nations are under my authority. Job chapter 12, Job observed, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nation, then leads them away. All of the islands are like fine dust, Isaiah said. He can just scatter them. Scarcely have these human rulers been planted. Scarcely have they taken stock in the earth. But then God merely blows and they wither and they fade away. He raises them up and then he casts them down. Because all nations do the bidding of the Lord. All human authority is established by God. That means all earthly rulers will submit to God. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is, his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We will not rule underneath the authority of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That is, God the Father speaks and he says, I've got a ruler who's going to rule over all of you. And then that ruler speaks, that is the son, the son of God speaks and he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord because he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now listen up, nations. Show discernment, O kings of the earth. Take warning, O judges. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Do homage to the sun, literally kiss the sun, right? Kiss the ring. Because you will. Forcibly or willingly. Because all nations, all kings, all rulers are under the authority of God. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's first vision, he was told this. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another. For another, It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That is the kingdom of God. Now, I've, I've said this before, but I want you to notice again, we don't have a United States flag on this stage. And that's not to diminish the significance of our flag, especially during this season where we are honoring veterans and we're voting for president. President. But what we're doing is we're actually making sure that the flag of the United States stays in its proper place. Right? It doesn't belong on the stage of a church. Why not? Because the church is greater than the United States. The church is greater than all nations. 
One of the things I love about our congregation on a Sunday morning, if you look around, we actually have men and women from many nations here. That's the body of Christ. The church transcends your nations. Whether you're from Asia or Africa or Latin America, the the church is a representation of the kingdom of God on earth. And so when we come together, we don't bow down before any earthly human flag. It's not to say that we aren't good citizens and honor our country and do good, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but the church, as a part of the kingdom of God, will go on forever and ever and ever. In fact, that psalm, Psalm chapter 2, where the Son is promised to inherit all of the nations, you know, that's repeated as a gift for the church. We will rule and reign with Jesus over all nations. So when we come together here, what we're doing is we're acknowledging the one true king who is over all nations and over us, certainly, and that is Jesus Christ. Right, church? So we honor the flag, but we keep the flag where the flag needs to be, and it's below the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, That's just perspective. So what I'm saying is this. Don't fear. My bottom line is this. Don't fear. We can rest. Be still, God says, be still and know that I am God. And resist the temptation to trust in earthly rulers to set all things right. (laughs) Resist that temptation. It's interesting. If you look at uh, the, the Israelite kings, they were warned. God warned them. He said, do not multiply three things. Do not multiply horses and chariots. Why not? Don't trust in your military strength to get you out of trouble. Trust in me. Don't multiply foreign wives. Why not? Well, foreign wives represented foreign alliances. Don't trust in other nations to get you out of trouble. Trust in me. Don't multiply gold and silver. Don't try to get really exceptionally rich so that you can trust your money to get you out of trouble. Trust in me. David understood this and he said, you know, don't trust in in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no strength whatsoever. Church, we need to rest in God's strength and we need to resist the temptation, which I think that the church has, has fallen prey to from time to time, that we're actually trusting in earthly rulers to set all things right. They simply cannot. Right? So, no fear. No fear. Now, having said that, no fear. God's got this. Sometimes the risk for us is this. Well, if, if God has this and God is sovereign over all things and he knows all things and he's going to accomplish his plan in the future, then there is nothing for us to do. Right? That is uh, fatalism. Right? That's my second exhortation to you. No fatalism. God can use us in the process of establishing his kingdom on earth. Right? Uh, sovereignty is a really popular uh, concept in the church today. It's, it's throughout the Bible, but I've just noticed in contemporary Christian literature, sovereignty is discussed a lot. And I think sometimes the church really misunderstands the relationship between sovereignty and human responsibility. So let's review. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty is this. Sovereignty means that God has the right to rule over everything, right? He has the right because he made all things. It, all things belong to him, so he gets to rule. Second, Sovereignty means he has the power to rule over everything. He is strong. So what he wants to do, he can do. And third, what he wants to do is the best thing that can be done because he is wise. He knows all things and he is good. That's what sovereignty means. Now, the question then before us is this. How exactly is God going to choose to exercise his sovereignty on earth? Well, that's what the text of the Bible tells us. And it tells us he doesn't do it in a a, a fatalistic manner. Instead, he usually executes his will 
through men and women. Right? Sometimes God intervenes directly into the course of human history, but most of the time he's intervening in a sense through mediators, through men and women and angels. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. God creates all things. He creates all the beasts of the field. Then he comes to the pinnacle of his creation, men and women, mankind. He says he created men, male and female, in the image of God. And then having created male and female in the image of God, he commissioned them and he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all of creation. And only you can do this. Because you're in the image of God, part of being in the image of God is that you will rule and reign. That is, you will represent me. Because only you can represent me because you're in my image. So go represent me. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by being in relationship with me and in relationship with one another. Because then you understand what it means to represent me. In other words, you value what I value. So, I want us to consider this question. What actually matters to God? But as you read the text of Scripture, what just leaps out? What matters to God? There are lots of things that matter, but, but what are the things that are most important to God? Let me give you a, a few ideas that I've discerned as I've read through the Scripture through the years. The first is, is this. Actually, no, I'm going to give you an illustration first. Here's an illustration. Okay, this last week, um, I stumbled on some research from Lifeway Research, and they asked this question, 2016 presidential election, Which characteristic of a candidate is most important in deciding how to cast your vote? Now, this is just evangelical Christians answering this question. And notice at the very top of the list is improving the economy. 26% said that's number one. (laughs) No, it's not, church. No, it's not. Now, granted, I'm happy to have a job, and I'd rather be wealthy than poor, all things considered. But when it comes right down to it, The GDP of the United States of America is not the highest priority for Christians when we choose how to vote. It should not be. What is it that matters to God most? A few thoughts. First, life. Okay, life. God has life in himself and he granted to certain creatures to have life as well. God made life. So you'll notice in the book of Leviticus, he said, when you're making a sacrifice... You can't drink the blood. Why? Because the blood represents life and life belongs to me, right? Life belongs to me. God is concerned about all life. He's especially concerned about human life. Why? Because men and women are made in his image. And so he said to men and women, you have authority over the beasts of the field and you can even take their life to to sustain your life because you are of a higher order of life being in my image. Life especially human life, matters to God. And so men and women, when we think about what matters to God and we decide that we're going to vote for someone, we need to think about God's priorities. Life is very, certainly at the very top of his list. Uh, Abortion is, is is a horrible thing. It's the ending of a human life. About one million of those will occur in the United States this year. Since Roe v. Wade, 1973, 60 million have occurred just in this country. That's troublesome to the Lord our God. Now, if that's a part of your personal experience, remember, Jesus Christ has covered the debt of of all sin. And you don't need to to carry that guilt through your lifetime or allow that moment to be defining in who you are. But as a church, we have to step back and say, this really matters. This really matters to God. Life is important. And if life is important, you know what's even more important in a sense is eternal life. 
Right? Eternal life is most important because God not, wants us not just to live and to prosper on the earth, but he wants us to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. So what is the church's first priority? It's the gospel. Right? The church's first priority is always, always, always the gospel. Second, justice. Uh, justice matters to God. In fact, God gave laws so that he could defend us from one another. <laughs> what happened in the fall? Because the fall, we decide uh, that we should be able to transgress the boundaries of one another's rights. Cain killed Abel. Right? Abel had an inalienable right to life because God had given him life, and Cain didn't have the right to take that, but he did. He, he, he transgressed that boundary. And so what God has done in giving laws is he's created boundaries on rights so that we can't transgress, or we will be punished for transgression. That is, God is protecting us from one another through law. Think about the Ten Commandments. The last five are all about protecting us from one another. Right? Don't, don't steal. That is, don't take your friend's property. Don't commit adultery. Don't take your friend's wife. Don't bear false witness. That is, don't take your friend's reputation. Don't covet. Don't, don't want anything that he has. Right? Don't transgress the boundary. So the boundary, in a sense, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a metaphor, but also literally he said, don't move the ancient boundary. Don't take from someone else's rights that God has, in fact, given. So justice matters to God. We should be just people, individually, personally, in the way that we treat one another. But also, we should work toward a state that is just. Proverbs chapter 16, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness, right? We personally should live righteous lives, just lives. We should not transgress the boundaries and take what does not belong to us in any form or fashion, but also we should want to live within a state which is just. What's the king's responsibility? Well, his responsibility is to establish his throne in righteousness, In fact, if you look at this description of the ideal future king that God will send, he says this, Behold, days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Church, that means that one of our priorities also needs to be working for justice, right? Working for justice in our land, especially for those who cannot speak up for themselves, Proverbs 31, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Church, we can't miss this. If you read through the scripture, you see over and over and over again, not only is God a just God, but God is particularly concerned for those who are vulnerable or without voice in a society. And one of the great markers of the health and strength of a society is, does it speak up for those who do not have a voice? Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. This is what James is talking about when he said, you want to know what really good religion is? Visit orphans and widows in their distress. Right? Serve those who are genuinely in need and cannot provide for themselves or speak up for themselves. That's a righteous and just society, and men and women. That's one thing that we should, in fact, be working toward. Or if I can say it differently, Jesus didn't allow any bullies on his playground. <laughs> Jesus didn't allow bullies on his playground. Think about his life. Who loved to be with Jesus? 
prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors. These are people that he, he would touch, literally he would touch, he would eat with. And it's not that they felt comfortable with everything that Jesus said. In fact, he challenged them and convicted them in their sin and called them to something greater and better, called them into relationship with his father. But at the same time, they knew that Jesus loved them and Jesus cared for them and Jesus would protect them. Jesus would heal them. Jesus would do good for them. On the other hand, there were people who didn't feel comfortable in Jesus' presence at all. Those were the bullies, right? The Pharisees. To them, he said, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, because you are taking from the people. You are not protecting the people. And so he never, ever tried to make a Pharisee feel comfortable whatsoever. No bullies on Jesus' playground. Church, that's part of our role. We should care about justice and righteousness in the land. Why? Because it's a priority of God. Listen to this verse in Jeremiah chapter 22. It says, he, that is Josiah, pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me? declares the Lord. Did did you catch that? The Lord is speaking to Josiah's son and he's saying to Josiah's son, I don't think you understand me. You really don't know me because you don't care about the things that I care about. Josiah, your father did. What did he do? He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well, that is, it was good in the land. And then he says this, isn't that what it means to know me? But if you really know me, then you care about the things that I care about. And what do I care about? Well, Josiah understood and so Josiah ruled righteously. What matters to God? Well, justice matters to God. Third, marriage matters to God. If you want to really understand your Bible, then spend next year in Genesis 1 through 3. (laughs) I mean, the foundation is laid there. Creation out of nothing. God made all things. God put all things in order. God made man in his image. God commissioned man to multiply and to rule, to be his vice regent and represent him. And then God put man into relationship, specifically into marriage. A marriage as a reflection of who he is, right? Two equal persons, division of responsibility, becoming one flesh, just like father, son, and spirit. Three equal persons, different responsibilities, but they are still one. Marriage being not just a reflection of the identity or the nature of God, but also for the good of society. And I want you to think for a moment, why, why has the state ever cared at all about marriage? If you think about this, why hasn't it always just been the church or religious institutions that care about marriage? Why does the state care? Why does it matter? What, you think about it, you know, the state... Uh, uh, puts a a cost to entering into marriage, right? You've got to fill out a form. You've got to pay a fee. There's a cost. There's a a small barrier to entry, and then there's a huge barrier to exit, right? You've got to fill out a lot more forms and pay a lot more money if you say, I don't want to be married any longer. And you have to do that with the state, right? The state has guarded marriage historically because the state has understood this is the foundational institution, social structure that ensures a solid secure, healthy, prosperous, next generation. It is that one institution. So in some form or fashion, we need to guard that. Well, in our country, the state has stepped back more and more and more from that guardian role. They don't care as much. And, you know, church, honestly, my opinion, we've probably lost that that battle on, on gay marriage. I mean, some Christians will continue to fight, and that's fine. I think it's probably lost. I think what the church needs to focus on is building healthy marriages, right? Build healthy marriages, build great marriages, marriages that aren't just... Uh, people who cohabitate in the same house and have some documents that they share together, 
but where they deeply enjoy one another, serve one another, minister to others with one another. That's, church, what we really need to focus on to the degree that we can because at some point, our culture is going to say, something's not working for us, but it is working for the church. We want what you have. We need to care deeply about marriage. And then worship. God has the exclusive right to worship and he cares that men and women have the right to worship him or not worship him and choose to worship him or not worship him freely because he deserves that. God deserves that. That's, that's freedom to worship. It's important to God. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, some scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they, they try to trick him and they say, Jesus, uh, should you uh, pay the poll tax? Is that lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar? Something Caesar charges us, should we pay it? And Jesus says, right, bring me a coin. They bring a coin and they say, who, he says, whose uh, likeness or image is on the coin? Caesar's. He says, well then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, what we often miss in that is, what image is on the coin? It's, it's Caesar's. What image is on us? God's. So render Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar gets the coin. What does God get? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Everything, even Caesar. Because even Caesar bears the image of God. Everything is under God's authority. So give that to God. Give worship to God. That's his right. That's the right of God. What matters to God? Well, uh, I think Micah 6.8 summarizes it, right? Do justice. Love mercy. Love loyal love. Walk humbly with your God. Live out your faith. Live it out. So, how do we live it out? A couple of thoughts for you. What, what can we do? Acts chapter 23, Paul said this. He's looking at the council and he said, Brother, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now, that phrase there, I've lived my life. Actually, that's uh, from a Greek verb from which we derive our word politics. Okay? What Paul is saying literally is this. I have discharged my obligation as a citizen with a perfectly good conscience. Literally, that's what that verb is. I have discharged my obligation as a citizen. And what Paul was acknowledging is that we actually have a dual citizenship, right? We are citizens of some earthly kingdom. Everyone holds a passport or a birth certificate from a particular place. But transcending that is that we are, or we're citizens of heaven. And we're citizens of heaven first and citizens of some nation on earth second. And we have obligations and duties to both, but we'll discharge them best when, they keep, when we keep them in proper order. So, as Jeremiah 29, verse 7, the Lord spoke to his people and he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. That is, God was speaking to his nation that had been sent off into, uh, first taken by the Assyrian nation, then taken off by the Babylonian nation. They're living in exile and God says to his people, Now that you are foreigners, aliens, exiles, sojourners, but you are living in this place, do good. Right? Do good to the nations around you. How do we do good? A couple of thoughts for you. First, submit. Submit to the governing authorities over you. Honor the governing authorities over you. Be a model in that, that you obey the laws of the land. So Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Peter reiterates the same point in 1 Peter chapter 2, submit to governing authorities because they are sent by God. Right? 
And as a result, you have a greater testimony or witness when you honor your earthly authorities. So submit. Okay, that's the rule. Exception to the rule, you might have to resist. Because there might be times when earthly authorities transgress the boundaries, right? They overstep the realm of the, uh, the, uh, the limits of their delegated authority, and you have to say no. You have to say no, right? That's what uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did when they said no. They said, no, we cannot bow down and worship any other exclusive right to worship. belongs just to God. No. So Peter and John did when the rulers said to them, don't talk about Jesus any longer. They said no. And there may be times when an immoral or an unethical boundary, uh, our government steps over a boundary, and it is our responsibility to respectfully say no. Vote. Vote, people. Vote because you can. What a privilege. What an honor. You want to do good? Well, be a part of the process of putting good people in place, or at least people who are as good as possible. Right? I mean... Really, I just think that we should expect that almost every earthly election is frequently going to be a choice of a lesser of two evils. But you can still participate in the process, you know, from local all the way up, state and national, you still can participate. Uh, in the last presidential election, the voter participation rate was 57%, meaning 43% of eligible voters didn't vote at all, including a lot of evangelical Christians, millions of evangelical Christians, just didn't go, get out and vote at all. I was talking to a friend uh, just the other day, he's in his 40s, and he's never voted in a presidential election. So I kicked him in his shins. I said, come on, <laughs> do your duty, Serve. Maybe God's calling you to serve in government and to be a righteous ruler or to serve in military and to be a righteous soldier advancing justice through our military. Serve and act, right? Act here, act now. Do something. Do something. You know, it's interesting if you, if you, think, about, um, you think about the news of the day 200 years ago. Right? News of the day 200 years ago was this. Farmer Lance's barn is burning down. Somebody's banging on your door. Farmer Lance's barn is burning down. Come help, come help. Well, you know, I know Farmer Lance. I just live around the corner from Farmer Lance. In fact, you know, we've shared meals together, and and probably some of my tools are in Farmer Lance's barn, and some of his tools are in my barn. Man, we've worked together. We know one another. So I hear this news, and what do I do? I grab my water bucket, and I run so that I can do good for my neighbor. I hear news, and I can act on that news immediately. What's the news of the day sound like today? Refugee crisis in Syria. Right, Kurdish rebels are, have set off a bomb in, in Ankara. Right. There's famine in Sudan and war. Brad and Angelina broke up. <laughs> and I say to myself, what can I do? Do I even want to do anything? But what can I do? I can't do anything. Well, okay, I can pray and then I can set it aside and keep on with my life. But most of the world doesn't pray, so what does the world do? Well, the world just worries. That's a result of what uh, technology has done to us is we get all of this information that we can't do anything with. And the result is uh, anxiety. A couple observations. Distance increases anxiety or apathy. It's so far away, I can't do anything, I just worry about it. Or I say, it's so far away, I can't do anything, whatever. (laughs) I'm not even going to think about it. I'm not going to even think about the billions of people who are suffering and hungry and 
poor and mistreated and in slavery. I'm, I just, I'm not even going to think about it. If I'm going to worry about it or I'm not going to think about it. Now, on the other hand, proximity increases empathy and opportunity. The closer I get, if I know that person, I know Lance, if his house is on fire, I care. <laughs> I really do care. And I want to help and I have opportunity to help. I don't have to walk very far to help. So here's the exhortation. Let's find a way to serve. Stop worrying about everything. Start doing something. Start worrying, or stop worrying about everything and let's start doing something. Maybe God is tweaking your heart for the needs that are right here, right now. And you say, you know, I want to help people in my community who are, are struggling. I want to help provide food or clothing or shelter. I want to use my skill to pass on to someone else who needs a skill so that they can get a job. Or I want to help these young women who have a, a pregnancy and that they didn't plan before. And I want to help them walk through that process. I want to do something right here, right now. Uh, you can check out opportunities on our website. You can email to our people. You know what? Or even better, ask some of our staff to be out in the portico. So as you leave, there are going to be tables and you can, you can ask them, what are the options? And they can hand you information. They can talk you through stuff. Maybe something's stirring in your heart, or maybe you just want to know what's possible. There are scores of ways that you can serve. Or maybe God is tweaking your heart that you actually do want to do thing, something for the Syrian refugees or for the nations who've never heard the gospel. And maybe you can't go today, but today you can learn how to pray a little better or you could give a little more. Or maybe God's saying, why don't you just start that process of moving toward the nations, moving toward going. Well, again, you can check the website or even better, we have people standing right out there who can help you begin to take some of those next steps. And now to immediate opportunities. Remember, church, our priority is the gospel. Our priority is gospel. So no matter, uh, we, we do want to feed people who are hungry because they, they're not ready to hear the gospel when their stomach is achy, but we want to feed and we want to share the gospel both. If you want to know how to share your faith, next week, November 13th, during the 11 o'clock service, Brian and Aaron White are just going to do a crash course on how to share your faith. And Brian and Aaron White are great at this. They do this. They love doing it, and they're good at teaching other people how to do it. So if you just want to refresh your course or you want to learn for the first time how you can share your faith, next week, meet with Brian and Aaron. It's going to be Anderson Fireside Room right back there through the glass. Okay? And then, ladies, another special opportunity for, just for you. November 7th. Hey, that's tomorrow. Tomorrow night, November 7th, 7 o'clock. Anderson women come here. There's going to be a panel of women who are actively using their gifts and their talents to be salt and light in the community. You want to get a, a sense of how can I serve Christ just right where I am, right here, right now, not changing my life dramatically or drastically, but just doing what I can do. Right? Tons of opportunities. Church, remember, remember the, the Good Samaritan. Remember the Good Samaritan. What did he accomplish? Well, he, you know, the reason he faced this, this challenge, so to speak, is because there were bandits on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't stop banditry in the world or even on that road. He didn't. What did he do? He did good to one man. And that was really important to that one guy. And so what he did is he sacrificed his donkey, he sacrificed his time, he sacrificed his money, he sacrificed his energy to serve that one man. Church, let's not fret, let's not worry. God is in control, but let's also get busy doing what we can, in fact, do to do good for others. Okay? 
Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you that you have revealed your son to us and in us. And I pray, Father, that we would be men and women who rest and trust in your power and your goodness and your wisdom, but also understand that you have made us to be men and women who go and do good to others. You've given us that opportunity to represent you on earth. And I pray, Father, that during this election we wouldn't worry and fret. We would vote well. We would vote wisely. We would vote over things that really matter to you. And we would trust you and trust the results into your hands. Father, you're a great king and we worship you and we we celebrate the fact that you will establish your kingdom permanently on earth and it will be good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Go out and do good for your neighbor. We'll see you next week.